0: All right, y'all ready? To study the Bible together. Let's take our Bibles and turn together to the Book of Judges. Last week we looked at the Book of Joshua, and Joshua is uh, the perfect contrast to the Book of Judges. In the Book of Joshua, what you see is the people of God experiencing the blessing of God during a time of of obedience. In in other words, you see in Joshua that the people of Israel are able to conquer and settle the promised land because they were obedient to God. We look specifically at Joshua 7 when Achan sinned and then the fall of the Israelite army at the little military outpost of Ai when they were disobedient to the Lord. The effectiveness of the Israelite army um, was was, uh, consistent with the faithfulness of the Israelite people to the command of God on their life. God, God bless them. In the book of Judges, what we have is an account of the people of Israel experiencing in many ways the curse of God during a season of great disobedience. Judges is one of the easiest outline books in the Bible. It goes very smoothly, and I'm going to walk you through it just like this. There are 12 judges in the book of Judges. This spans a period of history, about 400 years, um, from, from the first judge to the last ju- In fact, the last judge is actually Samuel, who comes in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll get there in weeks to come. Um, but there's, there are 12 judges, six major judges that the book of Judges gives us a lot of information about, and six minor judges that the book of Judges gives us just a very little bit of information about. And some of these judges are ruling at the same time. The chronology is not terribly important. But each of the judges in the book of Judges, each major judge um, goes through or experiences this cycle that runs over and over and over again in the book of Judges, and here's how it goes. The people of God sin against God, and then they fall under the wrath of God against them for their sin. The wrath of God brings in a neighboring nation or king who oppresses the people of Israel for a period of time. It's the S.W.O.R.D. acronym. Sin, wrath, oppression, And then the people of God do what we always do when we're under great distress. We repent. We ask that God would bring us relief, that He would help us, that He would remedy uh, our oppressed state. And they cry out to God. And when they do, God brings them deliverance. And He brings them deliverance through one of the judges that are uh, referenced and detailed here in the book of Judges. There is a single verse that characterizes. The, the moral and spiritual state of Israel during the period of the Judges. When I begin to say it, you'll know it. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not just one verse in the book of Judges. This statement is repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. The Bible says that in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is the summary statement for the 400-year period that was the period of the Judges. It's always interesting to me to hear God's preach from the book of Judges, because almost invariably what will happen is uh, these characters from within Judges become Bible heroes in our sermons and Sunday school lessons. Now, it's true that these men possessed faith. Some of these men are even mentioned in Hebrews 11, in that Hall of Faith chapter, where the Bible tells us that by faith, the likes of Jephthah and Samson were able to accomplish great things in the name of God. But the reality is, when it comes to the book of Judges, there really are no heroes. In fact, the only heroic figure in the book of Judges is God who is working in spite of some really broken, sometimes very backward, warped people to bring about the deliverance of of the people of Israel in spite of the incredible shortcomings of the leaders that are raised up to bring them out. Now, in your notes, it says there are five major kings, or five major judges, rather, and, and then and under the, the five judges, or the judges that are listed in your notes, there are only five of them, because we're not covering the first major judge. His judgeship is relatively uneventful, and since we have a lot of text to cover, we're going to bypass him and move uh, right into some of the other major judges here. But I've left you enough room there to scratch a few notes, and even under your outline, sin, wrath, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. Uh, there are references there to chapter 2 and certain verses where an introduction is given, and this outline approach uh, is provided there for you. The first major judge that I'd like for us to look at is a man named Ehud. Ehud is uh, among my favorite characters in the Bible, and in just a moment I'll tell you why. Turn to chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse number 12. You'll see this cycle, sin, wrath, oppression, repentance, and deliverance happening here very plainly in chapter 3, verses 12 and following. The Israelites, again, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They sinned. God gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. That's the wrath and the oppressive uh, uh, king or people are the Moabite people under the leadership of a man named Eglon. They had done what was evil in the Lord's sight and has brought this about. In verse 13, after Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. These are not brief periods of oppression, by the way. 18 years. Eglon lorded over the Israelite people. They were oppressed by the Moabite people for 18 years. In verse 15, the Bible says the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. Now, the fact that the brother is left-handed is the reason he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Left-handed people are all right, if y'all didn't know that. We, we, historically, we sort of have a good thing going. There are a few exceptions to that rule, uh, but there's something about a, a left-handed Bible figure that appeals to a left-handed preacher. They, they, they take Ehud as their judge. He's going to be their leader. He's going to be their deliverer. Only in verse number uh, 15, they send him down to Eglon, king of Moab, with the tribute money. Tribute money is, is basically a governmental form of extortion. If your nation will pay us this much money, then we will not kill you. We will, in fact, help to provide for your uh, safekeeping. If a neighboring nation uh, raises up against you, we will come help you. At least that's the deal, although it's, although that's an unreliable commitment. Tribute money is what a lesser group of people pay to a larger group of people or a more powerful group of people to keep them from invading their territory. In verse 16, the deliverance begins to unfold, and Ehud uh, pulls sort of a slick one on Eglon. In verse 16, Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool. And Ehud said, I have a word from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And Eglon's insides came out, and Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind them. Now I I believe firmly that Samuel, who is the author of Judges, writes this in a way that is intended to be somewhat comical. He, he pictures Eglon in a very um, comical kind of way. Here is a man who is very fat. In fact, he is so fat that when he is stabbed in the gut, that his belly consumes the blade, so much so that Ihu doesn't even withdraw the blade. He's kind of a doofus in the passage because he falls for Ehud's trick. He allows himself to be alone with Ehud in his upper chamber without the protection of his ancient secret service, and there dies really with with no defense for himself in a very, very disgraceful way. In fact, if we keep reading in chapter 3, what you'll find is that his attendants are standing outside the door. When Ehud leaves, he locked the door. The attendants at one point get concerned and go to the door, but presumably because of the smell emanating from the room, they make the assumption that he's relieving himself. That's the biblical description of what they were thinking. So they, they stay outside the room for this extended period of time, afraid to go in and interrupt their king in this sort of compromising position. If, you've, if you're a hunter... Uh, and you've ever gutted animals, you understand why they might have been reluctant to enter into the room after this man had been stabbed by Ehud the way that he had. Now, it may not be an outstanding thing for us to read about Ehud, this left-handed man. But in ancient Israel, in fact, in most ancient cultures, to be left-handed was really on par with having some physical deformity. You were handicapped. If you were left-handed, not only is Ehud pictured in this uh, comical sort of fashion throughout chapter three, but he's just been killed by a handicapped man. Now, in our days, left-handedness may speak to excellence and handsomeness and wisdom and those sorts of things, (laughs) but in ancient times, if you were going to be killed by somebody, you sure didn't want to get killed by a left-handed man. At least let a righty kill me if I've got to go down. And here Eglon goes down to what is in the ancient mind a man with a physical deformity. In this compromising position, he dies a most embarrassing death. So the first major judge that we've introduced ourselves to tonight is Ehud, who was by the standards of his time a man with a physical deformity or or a very real handicap. The next judge is unique in that she is the only female judge in the book of Judges. Deborah um, rules over Israel, leads uh, a part of Israel, beginning in chapter number four. In chapter four and verse one, the Bible says The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hokzor. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. Now backstory here, not only is Deborah serving as judge in Israel, but there's a man named Barak who is serving as judge in Israel as well. So you have a female judge in one territory and you have a male judge in another territory. Now Deborah approaches Barak and informs Barak that God is going to give them victory over their enemy. That Sisera, the king of this opposing nation, is going to be delivered into their hand. And, and Barak responds in a less than masculine kind of way. In verse 8, Barak said to her, If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you'll not go with me, I'm not going. In other words, the, the picture is you have a man who says, I'll go to battle if you, Deborah, will go with me. This is like the husband who's uh, shaken awake in the night. and Your wife lets you know that there's an intruder in the house or perhaps someone's trying to get in. And you say, "No, honey, I'll go check if you'll go with me. <laughs> this is not a good look for Barak. It's always interesting to me, and if you're a social media person, God help you, but you know know that within Christian Twitterverse, there's a lot of discussion now about complementarian roles, the roles of men and women within the church. It's always interesting to me when Deborah comes up as an example as to why it might be appropriate uh, to have women in leadership positions in the church. Because the point of the book of Judges is, ladies, forgive me, That the situation was so dire in Israel that there was no man with the fortitude to lead the people of God in battle. Here we have Deborah pleading with Barak, this judge in Israel, that he would lead the people out to battle. Now for his reluctance, God determines that although Barak and Deborah will enjoy victory in the battle, that a woman will be credited with the victory that they enjoy. Because the Lord brings judgment against Barak, uh, it is determined that Sisera will be sold into the hand of a woman. Only it won't be the hand of Deborah. Another lady will meet just moments from now. They move out and they begin to pursue Sisera. They're preparing themselves for battle. And verse 14 says, Deborah said to Barak, move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following. The Lord threw Sisera and all his charioteers and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth of the nations. And the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, come in, my lord, come in with me, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. And he said to her, stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. And while he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife Jael took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. And she hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. Now, Judges is one of the most gruesome books in the Bible. I think, as a lost person, if someone had pointed me to the book of Judges, I would have found interest in the content of Judges. The, the accounts of what's happening in the period of the Judges are just, they're just extreme. We just had a man with a sword in his gut and his entrails pouring out, and now we have a woman who is giving warm milk to Sisera the king and then drives a tent peg through his temple while he sleeps there. The moral of the story is, men, if your wife brings in warm milk tonight before bed, you might think (laughs) twice about taking her up on her offer. And and here a woman is credited with the death of this great king, Sisera. Now, um, there are certain shifts in culture and understanding. Uh, Certainly, the culture in which we live is uh, far less patriarchal than ancient Israel was. Certainly women enjoy higher esteem in our culture than they did in the days of uh, the judges. But you have to understand uh, Samuel's writing from the perspective of Samuel and within its historical context. This was not a a point of uh, celebration that Israel had to be led out of their oppression by the hand of a female deliverer. In fact, it was a blot on the history of Israel from the perspective of its original audience. So the first king that we've been introduced to here has a handicap. The second is a female in the absence of any real male leadership in Israel. And I'll uh, sort of let you in on the fact that it's not going to get a whole lot better as we continue on in the book of Judges. Look over to chapter 6. This is where we're introduced to one of the best known of the judges, a man named Gideon. Already many of you know what Gideon is best known for. Gideon is known for his fear. He was scared. But what I want you to see is it was really even worse than that. Uh, Gideon doesn't finish well. The, the end of Gideon's life, which is the part of Gideon's life that no one ever seems to want to talk about, is really, it's really not good. He, he kind of, well, he flops at the end. I can't read the story of Gideon without thinking about the Veggie Tales. We watched that episode so many times with our boys growing up. It's hard to shake that. But VeggieTales leaves off the sort of inglorious end to Gideon's life. I, I, I want to show that to you in a little more here, beginning in chapter 6. In verse 1, again, the Bible says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. In verse 6, the Bible says, Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. The reason they're poverty-stricken because of the Midianites is because they're such a vast people, and their livestock is so vast. They would come through the land of Israel, and they would take what they wanted for themselves to eat, and what they did not eat themselves, their livestock would graze down so that when the Midianite people left the land of Israel, there was literally nothing left behind. For the people of Israel. In verse 11, the Bible says, "'The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abezrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine vat in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, "'The Lord is with you, mighty warrior.' Gideon said to him, "'Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened?' And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him, you will strike Midian down as if it were one man. And he said to him, "If I have found favor in your sight, give me a sign that you're speaking with me. Please don't leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And in the verses that follow, God comes and affirms to Gideon that it is God that he's speaking to. It's unclear who Gideon is in this exchange with from Gideon's perspective until God verifies his presence. In fact, later in verses 22 and 23, Gideon realizes that it was the Lord he was speaking to. He's so afraid that God has to encourage him, you're going to live, you're not going to die because of this encounter. But God encourages and uh, strengthens Gideon. There's a new bravery about Gideon. And in verses 26 and following, Gideon answers for the first time the call of God on his life as a judge. Gideon's father and family are deeply involved in idolatry. And God instructs Gideon to go and to break down their altar to the god Baal and to cut down the Asherah pole, which was a central part of Midianite worship. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know that there were certain seasons when that was a major part of Israelite worship, although it was prohibited by the covenant they had made with God. Now Gideon, in a characteristically cowardly way, goes and tears down the altar and cuts down the Asherah pole at night when no one's around. So they wake up the next morning, and there's the altar to Baal in shambles, and the Asherah pole has been cut down, and there's this community gathering trying to determine who has assaulted their place of worship. Uh, Eventually, they determine that Gideon is the one who tore it all down, and they begin to make plans uh, to pay Gideon back for this problem, and Gideon's father argues on his behalf that they should let Baal deal with Gideon, and eventually uh, nothing really happens. Then God calls again and instructs uh, Gideon that he is to lead the people of Israel against the Midianite army. He makes his first attack against the Midianite gods, and now he makes an attack against the Midianite army. Only Gideon will need further courage in order to see this mission through. Some of you are familiar with the account where Gideon puts out the fleece. He says, God, give me a sign. He puts out the fleece, and the fleece is wet, and the ground around it is dry, and then Gideon says, how about one more sign? And then he puts out the fleece again, and the fleece is dry, and the ground around it is wet. I would warn you that that's not a pattern that we should follow after, that Jesus instructs us that we should not seek signs and wonders, that we simply do as God instructs us to go. But there are occasions like that in the life of Gideon where God accommodates our foolishness, or accommodates our weakness and provides some uh, extra encouragement uh, or even real courage in the case of Gideon to answer the call that he's placed on our life. Now, in chapter 7, Gideon has an army of 22,000 people. In fact, he has an army of 32,000 people. God says, you've got too many. Uh, tell all of the people who are afraid to go back in 22,000, go back, he's down to 10,000. And then God says, you still have too many. Take them down to the river and have them drink. And, and if, they, if they get on their knees to drink with their mouth from the water, or, um, or there was another position that they were to take. But if they take the water in their hands and they, and they drink, then they get to stay. And everyone else has to go back. And, and in the end, Gideon's down to 300 men, and the rest are all sent back. Now, in what remains of chapter, se- or chapter 7 is uh, an account of Gideon uh, circling the Midianite army in a way that should remind you of the army of Israel over the city of Jericho. They have trumpets and they have glass pitchers. And they surround the army of, of Midian, and at once the trumpets are blown and the pitchers are broken with great noise. And the army below them is cast into confusion, and they turn their swords against one another. And in this miraculous moment, God gives a cowardly Gideon and 300 Israelite soldiers victory over this vast Midianite encampment. It really is a remarkable thing. It's yet again evidence of God's desire to do things in a way that only he can receive the glory from. That's how God likes to work. If you find yourself in a position where you think, man, I can really see how this could work out, chances are that's not going to be the backdrop that God uses to bring great glory to himself. He, he tends to work... Uh, he, he, God, God, with reverence here, God seems to enjoy the position of the underdog, so to speak. When the odds are against the people of God, when there is no natural, reasonable accounting for what God does... That's precisely when God likes to do what he likes to do. Now, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, we have an account of uh, how Gideon finishes his life. Verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said, I'll not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So far, so good. He said to them, Let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We agree to give them. So they spread out a mantle, and everyone threw in an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was about 43 pounds of gold. In addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments on the kings of Midian, and the chains on the necks of their camels, Gideon made an ephod from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown, and all Israel prostituted themselves with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Now, does this sound familiar? Do you remember when the people of Israel were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and one Aaron said, let me have those earrings. I'll make you a god to worship. And a gold calf, in Aaron's terms, it, we, we put the gold in and the calf just jumped out. That's what Aaron said in Exodus 32. He really did say that. And, and here Gideon says, let me have those earrings. And he makes for them an ephod, uh, something that would have been a part of, of worship in any religious practice in the time. But here is used for uh, the purpose of idolatry. And Israel is led into idolatry by the very judge that God had raised up to bring them out from under the oppressive hand of the Midianite people. Now, what's interesting is that from this point forward, as descriptions of Gideon are offered, as his name is mentioned, he goes back to his Baal name, Jeroboam, as in the god Baal. And the same way, when reading your Old Testament, there are often names that make reference to the God of Israel. There are names from neighboring nations that make reference to the gods of those nations. For Joshua is an example of this, which it just means Yahweh saves. God, God saves. That's what Joshua means. Anytime you see Baal as a part of a name, it's an indication that there's a family heritage of Baal worship. And, and Gideon seems to revert back to the use of that name. Here, this this judge, who is the hero of of so many of our tellings of uh, Bible stories, is proved in, proven in the end to be scared and an idolater. This is not exactly the kind of leader that Israel was looking for, at least not the kind of leader that they should have been looking for. Now, probably the worst judge of all the judges is the next judge that we'll talk about in chapter 11, And his name is Jephthah, a great thing for her as a leader. Gideon was scared and an idolater. The best description I know to give you, one word description I know to give you for Jephthah is he was just a gangster. Look at how his life sort of shapes up before his judgeship, beginning in verse 1. Jephthah the Galitite was a great warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you'll have no inheritance in our father's house because your son are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and and lived in in the land of Tob. When some lawless men joined Jephthah and traveled with him. He's a brigand. He's an outlaw. He's the son of a prostitute kicked out of his house Probably, understandably so. We, we don't need to be ancient Israelites to understand that cultural phenomenon. And, and there he goes and he joins himself with, with a gang of treacherous men, unlawful men. That's who he goes and attaches himself to. Now look at verse 4. Sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to him, come be our commander and let's fight against the Ammonites. Jephthah is that cousin that you have that you really don't want to come to the family reunion, but you know if you ever need somebody to disappear who to call. Do y'all have that cousin? Maybe y'all don't have that cousin. But that's who Jephthah is. When they find themselves in a bad position, Jephthah is the man they call. It's almost as though they're gathered up and they think, who is the most bloodthirsty warrior that we know? Who, who is the most violent man that we know that might help us to deal with this Ammonite issue? And Jephthah's is the man that they go to. Now, th- this, this shows you that the moral compass of the people, where is the man of character? Where is a man who is of the book? Where is a man who is deeply committed to our covenant with God? Where is a man who satisfies the qualifications set forth for leadership in Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 17? None of those things are even on the radar for the people of Israel. Show us the most bloodthirsty, violent, vile, mean-spirited, ugly, nasty somebody you can show us. Sounds a lot like American politics. Show us that man. Give us that man who at all costs can lead us out from under the hand of the Ammonite people. And so they go get Jephthah. Jephthah says, why would I help you? You wouldn't let me live here. You made things hard on me. I found myself in the land of Tob. And they make the deal with Jephthah. Jephthah says, I'll come lead you. But if I lead you to victory, then I get to be the ruler over you. And eventually, that's precisely what happens. Now, what solidifies Jephthah's somewhat disgraceful place in the book of Judges is what happens beginning in verse number 29. The Bible says, "'The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, "'who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, "'and then through Mizpah of Gilead, "'he crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. "'Jephthah made this vow to the Lord, "'If you'll hand over the Ammonites to me, "'whatever comes out the doors of my house to greet me "'when I return in peace from the Ammonites "'will belong to the Lord.'" and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Aurora all the way to the entrance of Mineth and to abel karamim So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. But when Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child, He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You've devastated me. You brought great misery on me. I've given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. And by the end of the chapter, the daughter of Jephthah is offered as a burnt offering in order to seal the vow that Jephthah made before the Lord. Now, I would warn you against trying to make moral judgments about following through with the vow, about making the vow, those sorts of things. The gist of what we learn in, in Judges 11 is that Jephthah is an immoral man who at best makes an unwise vow and, and, and with even more uh, absence of mind or wisdom follows through with a rash vow in offering his virgin daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord as though the Lord were interested in such a sacrifice. Here is a man who is so discombobulated in his understanding of who God is and the nature of sacrifice that he would violate the very command of God in presumably rendering sacrifice to God. You see how there really are no heroes here in the book of Judges. Just one more judge, and we have to move quickly. It's Samuel, or Samson, rather. Uh, we know Samson for his great strength. I, I had a friend one time who was doing the math on uh, one of samson 's feats of strength was he broke down the gates of a city and he carried them betw- between two uh, identified destinations and judges and uh, we, we were in, We lived in Starfield at that time and and he had done the math and determined that that what Samson does would be like uh, if we took on our back a a, a double refrigerator a refrigerator freezer combo and put it on our back and carried it from Starkville Mississippi to Columbus that, that that's that's the same as what uh, Samson does in the narrative but from the very beginning of Samson's life he is marked by a complete and total absence of self-control especially as it relates to females a- and some of what Samson does here is just absolutely mind-boggling He's born under exceptional or really even miraculous circumstances. It doesn't appear that uh, his mother would uh, have children and she's given Samson and informed that he is to be set apart from his birth. But because of his status as sort of a miracle child, he's kind of a rotten brat too. And his parents determined to pretty much give him anything and everything that he wanted. In chapter 14, he sees a Philistine woman a woman he had no business with in the first place. And he goes back to his father and mother and says, I've seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Those are his words. And his father and mother uh, give in to Samson's request. And that's exactly what he does. In chapter 14 and verse 8, the Bible says, after some time when he returned to get her, he left the road to see the lion's carcass. And there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass He scooped some honey into his hands and ate it as he went along. When he returned to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. Now, background here. Samson is uh, given to committed to a a lifelong, something called a Nazarite vow, which means that you would not drink wine or any alcohol, you would not cut your hair, and you would not get into close proximity with, with anything that is dead. So he finds a lion's carcass with a honeycomb in what remains of its ribcage. Eating from that carcass, even the honey from that carcass, was in violation of of the commitment, uh, the vow that, that he had himself made. Now he's on the way to see his Philistine wife, and he comes up with a riddle on the way to see his Philistine wife, and it goes like this out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet and he makes a big bet with the Philistine men if you can solve the riddle uh, you win the bet if you can't solve the riddle I win the bet and he tells his Philistine wife what the answer to the riddle is and the Philistine men uh, basically uh, bribe the Philistine woman into informing them of the answer of the riddle and they answer what is sweeter than honey What is stronger than a line? And Samson says, what I'm sure every woman wants to hear said of her, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you would not know my riddle. (laughs) And Samson goes on a tear against the Philistine people. Um, he, He goes out and finds 300 foxes, ties their tails together, and uh, sets a uh, ties their tail together with uh, with a fire starter in the tail and lights their tails on fire and sends them through the grain fields of the Philistines and all of their crops burn up. They set out to take revenge on Samson uh, they come to arrest him. Samson fakes being arrested he makes them believe he's been subdued and when the Philistine men uh, rally around Samson to take him. Completely captive, he is in a valley and takes a a, a jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and killed a thousand men with it. And he said of himself, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in a heap with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. Later, Samson involves himself with another Philistine woman named Delilah. She's trying to talk Samson into sharing uh, the source of his great power. This is one of the most foolish accounts in all of the book of Judges. She tries the first time, Samson wakes up and breaks the cords. She tries the second time, Samson wake up, wakes up and breaks the cords. And the third time, he tells her that the source of his great power is, is his uh, long flowing locks. And eventually he is shaved bare and the Philistines are able to take him captive. They gouge out his eyes and Samson's there imprisoned in the land of Philistia. Eventually the Bible says that Samson's hair begins to grow back and he's brought out to bring entertainment to the Philistine people and there in the center of their court he places his hands between two pillars, pushes outward, the ceiling collapses, and more men die in the death of Samson than ever died at Samson's hand as a deliverer of Israel. So we had Ehud, the left-handed, handicapped man. We had Deborah, who was a woman, although a brave woman. We had Gideon, who was scared and an idolater. We had Jephthah, who was a gangster. And we have Samson, who had absolutely no self-control whatsoever. The close of the book of Judges helps us to understand what the real heart of Judges' message is all about. This, again, has been a period of time characterized by that single verse In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. The first part of Judges' message is very simple, very straightforward. You need a king. That holds true today. You and I need a king. Now, the way the book of Judges ends is with one of the more gruesome accounts in the book of Judges. There is a Levite man, a priest, who is traveling through Gibeah in the land of Benjamin, and he's eventually taken in, although it takes some time for someone to be willing to take him in, and in the company of this priest, this Levite man is a concubine, which is a good indication of where the nation was religiously, that you have a priest who's traveling with a concubine, but that's sort of another issue, and he's there in Gibeah. And and we have an account similar to what happens when the men of Sodom came to the home of of Lot, and, and they sought to lay with the angels that God sent there to bring the message of deliverance. They come to the door of of, of this home in in Gibeah, and they request that the Levite be brought out in order that he might be violated. And, and when when they, their request is not initially met, well. Um, the owner of the home offers to send his daughters out in order that they be violated in the place of this uh, person he's hosting in his home. And eventually they take the the Levite's concubine, and the the Bible says in, in, in in very descriptive terms that she was assaulted and abused throughout the night until she lays lifeless and dead at the doorsteps of that home on the following morning. And the Levite who had been passing through was so outraged by this that he cut her body up into parts and he sent her part by part throughout the land of Israel. And it was was this national incident. This was the thing that caught everyone's attention. And all of Israel came together against the tribe of, of Benjamin. There was outrage so much so that the other 11 tribes of Israel went to war against the Benjaminite tribe And they killed so many people from within Benjamin that in chapter 20 of the book of Judges, they have to pick from among their own tribes enough women to send over to marry with the Benjaminite men that the tribe of Benjamin can even be preserved. There is no king in Israel. You need a king. Now, think about when the book of Judges is is written. Samuel is the author of Judges. That's my firm conviction. It would have had to have been written before the time of David as king. Maybe it was written uh, in the, during the time of Saul as king, but in my estimation, it was probably even shortly before that. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, David of the tribe of Judah. Virtually every other tribe had been referenced or represented in the book of Judges, and those judges didn't lead very well. When you, when you back away from all of the political and tribal dynamics of the book of Judges, the message is not only do you need a king, but you need a king who is of the line of Judah. The, the, the only viable option for you as a, as a tribe from which to draw a king that hasn't already flubbed the dub in the last 400 years is the tribe of, of Judah. Benjamin is not going to be a source of deliverance. Benjamin created this national crisis that put us at war against one another. Benjamin so violated the Levite concubine that there was outrage in the land. Benjamin cannot be the source of Israel's next king. It must be someone who's of the line and lineage of Judah. In this way, even the book of Judges... For all of the violence and the graphic nature of Judges, even the book of Judges is pointing us toward a greater king of the line of Judah. Not just David, not Solomon. Certainly those were shadows of what was to come. But toward Jesus, born of the tribe of Judah, the very king we all ultimately and finally need he is our great king. We'll come back to that theme in First uh, and Second Samuel. But bear that in mind. The hero of Judges is God. And the message of Judges is that we need a king. And we need a king who's of the line of Judah.